0: to Beer Me. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Every episode, I will have a different guest on the show to discuss parts of the beer world. from Brewers, importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. Well, I'm very excited for my guest today. Uh, Joining the show, we have Garrett Crowell. He is the Founder, head brewer, artist, delivery person, everything for Yoke Fellow Beer um, in Johnson City, Texas. Uh, he was formerly the head brewer at Jester King Brewery in uh, right outside Austin, Texas. Uh, and he is a master of many things, but one thing I'm most impressed with is his yeast prowess. Um, but today, Uh, We are going to have a conversation about cool ships. Uh, And we'll get into a little bit about what that is and why we are having that conversation, specifically this time of year. But before we dive into everything that will be fun and exciting throughout this entire show, like we always try to do here on Beer Me, uh, first and foremost, Garrett, thank you so much for taking the time to join the show.
1: Of course. Thank you for having me. Happy Happy to be here and talk about beer.
0: It's always fun, right? In the middle of the day, have a, have a little beer conversation.
1: It is. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's so been my life for
1: the last 12 years talking about beer all the time.
0: Well, so if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your life and your background with our listeners on, you know, kind of how you got into this field and, and what that journey's been like for you.
1: Yeah. Um, in short, really got into beer when I was in college. I mean, that's when I was of age to legally purchase alcohol. Um, I had some really great roommates and we lived in Galveston, Texas. I went to Texas A&M University there. Uh, we lived downtown. <clears throat> we lived in this really old apartment built in the late 1800s. And on the floor level, um, there were some shops. There was like this kind of touristy shop that had a, a cold box with a bunch of different beers. So we'd walk downstairs grab a beer, sit on a bench and like, just try new things. And, uh, I think that was kind of the impetus for like, okay, I'm interested in this thing more so than just a social beverage, like it's flavors intrigue me. I want to know more about it. So started homebrewing. And then from there, I think the first batch of beer I homebrewed, it was, uh, those same roommates it was a Vienna lager and it did not turn out very well but most first homebrews don't yeah um we were trying to emulate a a favorite beer of ours Shiner Bach um which is not real close to an actual Bach neither here nor there um, but yeah that that first batch of homebrew I think my gears were turning of like what am I going to call my brewery what is, you know it just it just it made a lot of sense i was uh i was studying um what was pretty much like a a humanities oriented marine science degree um, called maritime studies a lot of archaeology anthropology cool stuff not practical in the job world um, but i'm glad i did it i'm glad i got a degree in that um, and it eventually led me into beer in kind of a roundabout way. But uh, yeah, um, all that time I was playing music as well. Music brought me to Austin, which I would say, no offense to the other cities in Texas, but is kind of like the beer hub in our state. Um, I think there's more people interested and and adventurous enough to spend hard-earned money on beers that are more expensive or more assertive than what is normally available. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and it just kind of, kind of tangent from there. Um, I ended up getting my first professional brewing job at Jester King Brewery. Um, Mm -hmm. I had an opportunity to volunteer there and just all the while was bringing homebrews out those homebrews at that time this would have been a good six years after I began homebrewing all the beers I was sharing at that time were all mixed culture. Um, So containing many different kinds of yeast and bacteria, which at the time, those beers, those styles of beers, weren't commercially available in Texas. We could buy Orval, which I think was Mm -hmm. the only, like, legitimate mixed fermentation beer available in the state of Texas. I caught wind that Jester King was going to be pursuing these, and I was like, okay. I I lived in Houston at the time, actually. I, I popped back from Austin into Houston to work and I would just, I'd make myself available and go out there twice a week and volunteer and got my foot in the door. And then I spent almost six years working there um, from volunteering on the bottling line and then eventually becoming head brewer and transitioning at the time, they had two different fermentation programs. One was clean and the other was all mixed culture. Mixed culture was housed in a separate facility, a barrel room, but we made the conscious decision to uh basically allocate all fermentation space to mixed culture fermentation which was a pretty risky move for a production brewery whose output at the time was I don't know we were doing like 1800 barrels of beer it's a lot of beer to be responsible for um for a program in which there really was no precedent for but it worked and uh I learned a lot it was a lot of fun um and then over the course of time I feel like my palate changed away from those beers. They were great. They were a lot of fun to make, but to consume in quantity and then kind of the pendulum swinging back right where I first began drinking as more of a social appendage than an impact thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, kind of gotten to where I am with the Fellow and making just what are like simple expressions of the classic styles without allocating any certain nomenclature of style to them because i think that creates um expectations that are too broad to pinpoint into one thing like like saison what is saison it's a thousand different things so i'm making a beer that is of that style but isn't a saison and then like i make uh, an english style pale ale that i call ilk but i'm calling it ordinary pale beer instead of a bitter because mm-hmm. again, that's a style of beer in which the hallmark examples are all vastly different from one another. At any rate, yeah. that's where I started and here's where I am now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I we've we've talked on the show at length of um, you know about Jester King and not only from you know a beer perspective, but also from a guest experience perspective, just how thoughtful a lot of the aspects of the experience are um and you know it's definitely a brewery worth traveling to um, absolutely yeah it's definitely definitely worth the worth the track and i have gone on at nauseum about my love of Le Petit prince so um i won't do that again on this show cuz i feel like i've taken up too much airtime <laughs> but so you know you had mentioned during your your time at Jester King, you know talking about um, you know, mixed fermentation and kind of having a, a clean section and um, you know, a separate area uh, for those more funky style beers. So this brings us uh, conveniently to our conversation about cool ships, um, what they are, what they do, why uh, why they are significant. So for listeners who maybe aren't too familiar, we are in cool ship season um, at least historically speaking, uh, that's typically runs from November to March. Um, when you're in Texas, I'm assuming it might be a little trickier because you need to keep it below what, 46 degrees Fahrenheit.
1: Yeah. For, I mean, 45 degrees mm-hmm. Fahrenheit is kind of the rule of thumb. I, I that's, we went by that just because that's what we were advised by people that have been doing it for a long time in Belgium. As far as like whatever scientific precedent there is for microbial activity above that, I, I don't know. I don't know yeah. what that is. And it could be arbitrary. It could be this is just what <laughs> worked. But yeah, that's what that's what we used.
0: So if you could just we'll back up a little. Can you explain to the listeners exactly what a cool ship is and, and why yeah. you use it?
1: Um, it's so, and every brewery from, you know, now back, however long beer has been made there, there has been some device to cool off wort, which is unfermented beer between it's cooking, like boiling it and then fermenting it. And then for, for a very, very long period of time, cool ships were kind of that answer. So a large shallow metal vessel, sometimes copper recent times stainless steel. But and being large and shallow, it facilitates the cooling of that word through ambient nighttime air temperatures or daytime. I guess it doesn't really matter. But the cooler the surrounding air, the quicker that heat exchange, that heat transfer is going to occur. Um,
0: And this is and and they're doing this because when you need to add the yeast, it can't the temperature can't be too high or essentially it'll it'll kill all the yeast.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, if the temperature is too high, you know, above 120 Fahrenheit or so, you could run the risk of killing what became the wanted microorganism, Saccharomyces, which is responsible for really efficiently creating palatable beer. Um, Above that temperature, you have rampant bacteria, some of them bad, like, like um, pathogenic bacteria, but some of them good in the case of producing Acidic beer, uh, lactobacillus things of that sort that would very quickly reproduce at those elevated temperatures. So, you know whether those cool ships were beat. I think they're in kind of the beer world. The cool ship is attributed to lambic, and most currently it is those are the styles of breweries still employing this because you're leaving. Unfermented beer out in the open air—you do run the risk of contamination from wanted or unwanted microorganisms. But pretty much all breweries were using some form of cooling in that way, using the open air. There's a there's a really cool brewery in Franconia. I think Gansdorfer. Don't quote me on that. It might be Gansdorfer,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: they still, they still use a cool ship and they make lager. And yeah, it's it's really cool. Uh, pun intended. That um, always that's a device that was its inherent design was to simply cool something down, not necessarily to introduce microorganisms for a certain flavor profile. But the lambic producers are the ones using it still in the greatest quantity. Therefore, I think it's typically attributed to to them.
0: Yeah, and I, I think and, and for those who maybe aren't familiar I think Allagash describes it best when they say it's a room-sized brownie pan. Like if you, if you picture like kind of like a very large shed or, you know, something that would span across, you know, an attic or something like that. And, you know, typically the depth is, you know, a foot or, or, you know, it varies. I've seen, I've seen different kind of levels of, um, but it is a more shallow kind of, thing but yeah room-sized brownie pan is 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 like the best description I've I've seen that kind of helps visualize it um and um you know when you were saying that this is something traditionally used um by lambic producers um you know in the region kind of right outside uh Brussels um I think there was like something there was something very romantic around the description that I remember reading, like when I was first learning about this, where it's like, you know, when the temperature reaches a certain time in the season, the wart is put into the cool ship. Um, and at night, the windows are thrown open to allow the brisk air to inoculate the the wart. You know, just, it sounded like a, I don't know, like a beer romance novel, like <laughs> some some poetic waxings and 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 it is it is really cool um but i'm excited to see more uh more american uh brewers you know using these and adopting these and um so if you can kind of dive into a little bit more why the temperature is so important and why the season is you know why we're we're kind of in it now
1: yeah. I mean, it, I think historically, a lot of the brewers in Belgium making lambic had experiences with with beers that were brewing outside of a cooler season, i e. winter, um, mm-hmm. going bad, or achieving a flavor profile that they that wasn't palatable. And I don't know exactly what that was. Maybe it was acetic, but acetic typically happens post fermentation what happens before fermentation would really have not much to do with that um it could have been the wort taking a lot longer to cool when it's warmer um you having issues with like um enterobacter and things like that that just make wort smell like old parmesan cheese which is not not palatable um but yeah i mean the and mind you my experience and knowledge is relatively limited compared to a contingency of people that have been doing this for you know the better part of 200 years but the cooler the nighttime temperature the quicker that exchange of heat is going to occur in a cool ship and the quicker that occurs the the lesser the chances of having pathogenic bacteria and also compounds like dimethyl sulfide which would be present in a very slowly cooled word.
0: yeah no and I think um uh I forget I, I, I had the I had the privilege of of going to Belgium and I forget which brewery I was at but uh the brewer kind of we got to see a cool ship and the brewer kind of described it he he, he he definitely wasn't getting very technical. It was definitely like a tour guide for like tourist kind of situation. And he was basically like, um, you know, we, we do the cool ship uh, in the cooler months so that, you know, it's kind of low and slow uh, the way he was kind of describing the barbecue. And then he was like, we can't get it in the spring because you know, all the yeast is crazy with sex. Um, And I think what he was trying to say was like, you know spring is kind of a time of where you know m- organisms are excited and and building things mm-hmm. up and um but I, just that just that descriptor is kind of like stuck with me and i kind of have like you know some kind of mental picture of like sex crazy yeast molecules in the air or something like that <laughs> um <Makes sense. laughs> um but that but that description has always uh always kind of stuck with me um So what has your experience with, with cool ship been? Is this, um, you know, something that you look forward to, or, you know, when you have to, when you're, when you've ever done a brew with a cool ship, is it, is there, are there certain protocols that you, is there tricky things? Is this, or is this something that you're like, oh man, this brew is going to be a pain in the ass. Like, what is the, what is the feel for you?
1: Compared to like a normal brew day, definitely a pain in the ass. Um, but it but it's like it's ceremonial too. It's different. It's it's almost like I used to, when I was working with Jester King, I used to compare it this way: like you're a teen brewing, it's like commuting to work. You're you know, you're driving a typical car and you're just on a highway with a thousand other cars driving to work. But brewing a beer in the style of Lambic, destined for a cool ship, is like driving a manual transmission sports car in the mountains it's very hands-on but it's more adventurous and more exciting and mind you i like when i was there with jester king we brewed i only brewed cool shit beer with them for four seasons so
0: mm-hmm.
1: very very limited but i learned an immense amount um, from doing so um to walk you through the process quickly um so the construction of the mash is quite different. It's traditionally, I think, 60% pale malt or pilsner, and then 40% unmalted wheat, which is an assertive amount of unmalted wheat. Um, and we employed what's called a turbid mash. So you're mashing in, um, very cool at first, and then removing a portion. It's similar to decoction, but you're not actually removing the grain. You're just removing liquid. So you're removing a portion of the liquid boiling it, adding it back infusing more water. And it's like this kind of just wacky roundabout way. And it goes against almost every rule of like proper sacrification and a mash that you can think of, but it works. And then you end up sparging with boiling water, which is like a big no, no. Um, but in doing so, you kind of you you're pulling out like phenols and tannins and all sorts polyphenols and tannins and all sorts of stuff from the mash and from the grain you wouldn't ordinarily get otherwise that ends up going into a cool ship to cool down and then ends up going typically into oak or into a barrel to ferment and um if you're making a beer in the style of like goose which is a blend of one two and three-year-old spontaneously fermented beer that length of time upwards of three years all of those things—the tannins, the polyphenols—are either contributing texture, longevity, um, or being metabolized into different flavor, flavor, and aroma compounds over that very long period of time, and create something really cool and really incredible. Um, and it's it's a very arduous process, but uh, it's intriguing. I, the the very first. Cool ship experiment we did when I was at Jester King, we mm-hmm. used, uh, it was our bottle washer, we had custom built this stainless steel bottle washer that was maybe maybe like a foot deep, two feet wide by eight feet long. And we had some leftover work from a brew that was in excess of what our intended yield was. So we put it in there overnight. Um, and then it fermented and it was cool. We never ended up using it. It, I think it ended up getting dumped. It just didn't, it wasn't bad, but it just didn't quite fit into anything, but it really like got the gears turning. And then I think it might've been three months later, we had an actual cool ship constructed and did like a proper turbid mash, brewed wort intentionally for the cool ship. And then that kind of set the tone for, for what became, I guess, Pretty integral part of the program there, and I'm pretty sure they're still brewing those beers.
0: Yeah, no, I think um, when you when you said it's like a little bit of a a ceremony, um, anytime I've seen a cool ship, um, it always feels a little church like. There's like a, a a silence or a I don't know. There's again, I'm getting back to like kind of how poetic it feels, but it they always yeah. feel a little church like.
1: I think that's because it's there's the uncertainty of what's going to happen to that work that you just spent 14 hours making and then just <laughs> leaving it open to the night air. I mean, kind of like spirituality, like there's no some people may dispute this, but there's no like physical, tangible evidence of a deity. Many people believe that there is one or that there are many. But there's a, there's mystery and that's intriguing. And I think it's the same for, for cool shit beer. Like maybe there's scientific, I mean there is scientific evidence of how they ferment, but it's it's fun to maybe even disregard that and embrace that mystery and that lack of control over what's gonna happen. And in a sense, it is kind of church-like.
0: Yeah. No, I mean that's 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 put perfectly. I I feel like there's also a little bit of um uh, you know, close your eyes and pray for light kind of, kind yeah. of feel that the that the brewer has to endure Sure, sure. <laughs> um, and I feel like there's so many styles within beer, especially when you are doing any kind of like mass production where the guest or the consumer expects the same product. And, you know, there's so much uh, struggle to get this exact consistent product. Um, to be able to, or to to have to do a style where you're not really looking for consistency is is a little counterintuitive. Um, it's almost like a the brewer would have to have some kind of like split personality.
1: Yeah. Yep. I I think there can be consistency in those styles of beers though. I I, but I think it takes a long time, and I yeah. think it's less. I a lot of people call that terroir. I don't really believe in terroir i mean I, I i understand the concept but i think there's too much stock putting in put it in, put into location and it's more of a habit of an individual or a group of individuals more so than where something is made to go off really? on a, ta- a very a very quick tangent two things i do believe have terroir and again way tangent but i think it's necessary to kind of i guess get to the point. Oysters, raw oysters, and then mushrooms, especially mushrooms that can't be cultivated, morels, chanterelles. I think those can truly exhibit like a sense of place and a taste of the, the land or the water from which they came. Yeah. Other things, grapes, grapes don't grow naturally in rows. Um, there's a lot of human inputs that I think are disregarded. Same with beer, at any rate, house character is where I'm getting at, and I think there can be consistency in these styles of beers, it's gonna take a very, very, very long time for a to achieve that. And it's mostly microbial, and it does have something to do with the surroundings, but I would attribute that more to temperature than anything else.
0: Okay, you took a fascinating stance there. I definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the mass amount of wine education that I've had to uh, drag myself through and you know i'm thinking of that classic example of like and on every provence rosé you get a whiff of lavender from the lavender fields um yeah, I feel like but I thought,
1: people planted those lavender fields that's the product of people
0: well, that's a really fair point that is a really fair point um man now i want to go off on some like crazy uh <laughs> terroir terroir tangent but um, unfortunately, we are we are running low on time here. Um, thank you for taking time to discuss the cool ship. But before we sign off, um, you know, I want to make sure that listeners know to check out your beer. And um, can you tell them a little bit about if, if there's anything exciting coming down the pike for for you at Yoke Fellow?
1: Yeah, um, just I mean, I make a very small amount of beer. Um, most of it we sell in Johnson City through a bar called Nice and Easy. Um, also, a little bit goes around Austin. Um, they're just kind of, I call them easy drinking beers, which they're typically 5% or lower in alcohol. Nice. Intended to be consumed in quantity and then just kind of focusing on like basic beer ingredients, grain, yeast hops, um, all in an effort to make something delicate and um, and uh, not obtrusive, just drinkable appendages to conversation. Yeah. Coming up here, I've got a beer called Billowing Clouds of Hollertau coming out. It's the first Yoke Fellow beer that was ever brewed and uh, very excited to get it back in pipeline.
0: Nice, that's awesome. Well, uh, Garrett, thank you so much for Taking the time, I, I really appreciate it. And I feel like we will need to have you back on the show to go off on some more tangents here.
1: Sure. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Enjoy chatting with you.
0: Well, everyone, this has been another episode of Beer Me. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, feel free to reach out at Beer Me Radio on Instagram or Beer Me at gmail.com. We are available anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, so, like, subscribe, give all the stars.